Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Greetings, you've landed at the VUC, IP Communications and VoIP Community. We would like to thank Simwood.com for their support. Simwood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is from OnSIP.com, and you can go to GetOnSIP.com for a URL people can click to call you. We've been privileged over the last five years to be using the best conference bridge on the planet. Yes, I'm talking about ZipDX.com, full-color, full-featured, full-HD conference bridge. Our website, VUC.me on the web, is hosted by Bluehost.com. And our worldwide local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Yes, it's amateur radio, zoomed ahead 40 years to 2015, ladies and gentlemen. We've got James Bodie, we've got Andy Smith, we've got Michael Graves, we have Jim Courtney, esteemed guest. Hey, Jim. Good afternoon, or good, yes, it's afternoon even here in Toronto now. <laughs> it's great to see you, Jim. We're gonna, I'm just going to do one very quick announcement. No, two, actually. Here we go. First one is Cranky Geek, 16th of April in London, and then... Anything in April? Yes, Tad Hack. Ah, I should read this first. It's 11th and 12th. And James Bodie will be there, he says. And maybe Andy, I don't know. London, hey. Uh, and then Berlin, <coughs> Germany, May 27th to 29th. I'm reading this like you are, folks. Kama uh, Ilio World. I will be there. James will be there. A bunch of people will be there. I think Emil from uh, Jitsi will be there. A bunch of people. Terrific. Finally, last but not least, Tad Hack in Portugal, in Lisbon, 13, 14 June. We're also going to be all meeting there. And here is a scoop. I don't have a graphic for this, so let me go ahead and uh, put my camera on. Astrakhan, ladies and gentlemen, the we can now announce that it is in... Wait, where's my drum roll? Astrakhan 2015 is in... Orlando. Yes, Orlando, Florida, mid-October, Astrocon, astrocon.net. Now, the moment we've all been waiting for, Jim Courtney, a.k.a. Jim Kanuck on Twitter and uh, many other places probably. Jim, uh, how did the first edition come about before we talk about the second edition? And we're talking about Skype, and Skype has been gotten a lot of talk, a lot of chatter on Skype. For the recent changes, but we're going to go back first to how your first book got, how the first edition happened, and then we'll be talking general Skype, and then we'll be talking present and future. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so um, I actually initially was involved with a VOIP software project back in 1995 when I worked at Quarterdeck, <clears throat> and we actually developed something called uh, WebTalk, and I watched the engineers struggle to make this work on a 50, um, I gotta get this right, 50 megabit Intel chip platform and 43 kilobit per second modems. 
and that was not trivial. Uh, but to some degree it worked. Of course, the, the issue was you sort of threw yourself out there and maybe somebody would contact you. Uh, no directory, none of that stuff. Um, so we sort of fast forward to about 2002, I had a client who had developed a screen sharing program that also incorporated some uh, at least voice over IP technology. But then uh, a couple of years later, uh, I heard about this Skype, got set up using it, and I was uh, actually using it with a client who traveled around a fair bit. And in particular, I remember one time I was uh, at his um, customer's place at a medical clinic in Santa Barbara. He was in Oslo, Norway, and I could make a, a long-distance voice call to him over Skype, and nobody in that office even knew there had been an inter overseas international call made. Um, so it sort of demonstrated the independence of over-the-top type uh, offerings. Uh, in 2006, uh, through various events, I got invited to join Skype Journal as a contributor, uh, got into following it a lot, uh, and writing for it a fair bit. Um, around sometime, I think, 2009, 2010, I switched over to my own blog post because poor Phil, he kept on having the server go down. And once, fine, but the second time, I said, i got to have it keeps working. <laughs> and uh, so launched voice on the web.biz, and now got, I was able to, People involved with Skype Journal ah. said, yeah, you call, um, what's the rugby term, Scrum, uh, sort of as the back end. So you now get new updates every, or sorry, it's, it, Scrum is used for the development process with the result that you now get new updates probably every two to three months for each version. Uh, and, of course, they're also addressing any security issues that come up and other stuff. Um, even the Skype for Windows 8, 7 desktop, you know, they've made some changes as a result of the feedback and so on. Um, where does Skype still remain unique? Well, first off, Skype is only a communications product. It's not an add-on to Google Hangouts it's not, or Google Talk or Gmail. It's, uh, it's totally focused on communications. And a big thing is that it's still the only one that's totally cross-platform across all these different devices. Um, one of the biggest things, though, and this is important for all the new IP communications coming out, and Dan York recently wrote a very good post on this, and this is the directory issue. You can go to Skype and you've got 300 million monthly active users. And in the course of some of my work, um, uh, working, uh, I've been exposed to some other people trying to come up with business conferencing services and all that sort of stuff. And even over the nine years of covering Skype, we've seen lots of things come along and go away because they didn't have, you know, they didn't have users, you know. Now, things like WhatsApp took off, and we'll talk about that later, uh, and uh, the, the ones that have a hope of getting significant adoption are the ones where you have 100 million monthly active users because there's somebody there at the other end to talk to or chat with. And then they have this full feature set is 
you know, chat, voice, and video, obviously, the enrichment features, the collaboration features. Uh, one, one thing I don't see popping up of the others, and I know on the wire stuff we're keep asking for this, is edit, remove chat messages. And uh, that's one feature that certainly Skype has and I find I'm using all the time and is one feature you have to train users to use. Uh, the search and archive, I've got a seven, eight, nine, what is it, 2015, go back to 2007. So I got an eight-year archive of one Skype group chat, which is a bunch of Skype enthusiasts, um, and I can go back and search it at any time. Uh, it's still the only one where you really can place calls to and from landlines and mobile phones uh, on a worldwide basis. Uh, Google had something with one of their offerings where you could do that, but only if you were in the U.S. Um, and this this calling to landlines and mobile phones. That's why Skype has become my desktop office phone. I, I don't have a phone set for my business on my desktop, uh, my office desktop. And then it started to do all these integrations with Outlook.com, Office 365, and um, talk a little bit later about Skype for business. So here's just quickly run through the contents to give you an idea how we laid it out. The first chapter, people like to talk. That's a that's a um, What's his name? The founder, Nicholas. Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Nicholas, the founder, used that expression when he launched Skype, uh, and that's still true. Uh, it's really an introduction and some background to the evolution of Skype. Uh, talk about connecting to Skype is getting first getting your Skype account set up, and then how do you connect to the internet? Uh, enriching conversations talks about the features like file transfer, collaboration, uh, screen sharing, all those things. I found three use cases from businesses that cooperated and helped me out here. Um, then we talk about using Skype on the desktop, which is really PCs and Macs. Um, the editors kept reminding me that you have to have PCs people think of as Windows machines and Macs are Macs, because uh, I just kept writing PCs. Um, Skype on mobile devices, which again, we've sort of talked about, talking about calling landlines and mobile phones. The biggest feature I use on Skype is Skype Chat. Uh, it becomes a virtual water fountain, especially in, um, uh, especially for asynchronous groups where we can drop in and out all the time and so on. Talk about managing your Skype account, some of the hardware considerations. I have to say one of the things I found there is, uh, one, Skype dropped their uh, hardware certification program because all the hardware coming out now tends to support you know, super wideband audio tends to support HD video. It's on webcams. It's built into laptops. It's built into displays, etc. So um, the whole reason for having a certification program almost evaporated, and they shut down the Skype store itself, and now direct you to something called Direct Chat and Vision. And Microsoft is working on getting some hardware into their store. Um, talk about collaboration and building geographically dispersed teams over Skype. And then I have a chapter where I'm talking about Outlook.com, Office 365, and right now I call it Link because that's what officially they call it still. And in 13, I try to talk a little bit about what could we look for in the future, things like could, what could be the impact of WebRTC, and even talk about link going to Skype for business and that sort of thing. And it's always useful to have a glossary of terms so that you can sort of have translate the technical terms. Um, 
their target audience still tends to be family and friends, small businesses that are building worldwide. I mean, there's tons of examples. I mean, they used to claim that 40 to 50% of Skype calling was business activity. Uh, um, why did I go to a publisher? Well, first they approached me. So, uh, But A-Press, as I said, is a division of Springer. Uh, in the production, I worked with a bunch of editors, and they do all the formatting and all that stuff. Uh, they're set up to do, deal with both print and ebooks. They use print-on-demand services. Actually, if you order on Amazon, they actually use CreateSpace. If you order through the A-Press size, they have a deal with a print-on-demand service. This is this is these things where these companies get these huge Xerox machines. Um, my own local university has been using it for a few years, so the professors can print their textbooks on demand rather than having to inventory them. And, you know, it gets rid of a huge inventory issue for book publishers. Uh, and they have different channels beyond Kindle, which is by far the largest. Uh, go to Barnes & Noble. They say it's going to be on iBooks and Google Play. Um, it's obviously on Amazon, apress.com, and it actually is promoted through some programs on Springer and uh, Springer, Apress, and even Kindle have some lending programs where if you subscribe to Amazon Prime, you get um, uh, you get you can check a book out for two weeks or something like that. And uh, Amazon has a big program to help provide royalties to compensate authors and that sort of stuff. And Apress does a similar program where I think for $199 a year you can subscribe to their program and then you can access any of their books. It's just you can't store them but you have a bookshelf where you can go back to to pick them up and so on. So uh, made, I think, you know, there's been a huge change in how the whole publishing business works because of the Internet. Um, some of the topics we could talk about today is, you know, the user experience. I think the, the playground these days is to enhance the user experience. We see other applications such as Wire coming out, and really it's a user experience game because all the technology is pretty mature at this point. We've got standards for video uh, codecs. We've got standards for audio codecs. We've got standards for uh, there's better toolkits for developers and so on. Um, so the game is how do you how do you get the user best user experience for a particular needs, uh, which also means you can start to get into some market fragmentation. Um, Skype faces a challenge of having innovation on what's a legacy familiar platform. You know, companies get or offerings get to a certain size, and you got to keep on remembering, geez, we've got these people that we've had on board for several years. Uh, the biggest example, of course, being Microsoft trying to keep Windows uh, stable and up to date and so on. I mentioned the directory issue earlier. Uh, the big sad thing is educating users beyond voice and video calling, and as an aside to that, is educating smartphone users to the fact that it's more than just a phone and an SMS text messaging device. And I'm surprised at the number of people who have just stuck to that point, even though they might have an iPhone or whatever. <coughs> what are the feature set when evaluating alternatives? I got some more slides on that. And where does it play a role in unified communications, anytime communications, and so on? This sort of came out of last week's discussion um, with Dave Michaels, where he was talking about rooms. And, you know, Outlook.com is a classic example of merging Skype and email. So, um, so 
let me open up the discussion at that point and I can interject with these other slides. Sure, sure. I guess uh, one one question I have is uh, there was a uh, there was a, an, a project. It was Skype everywhere at one point, and it was going to be Skype on TVs and tablets and mobile devices. And the mobile devices seemed to happen, and there were even some dedicated hardware things like Tele HD. And and uh, what what became of all of that? Does that okay? Carry tele on? HD actually um, has it's still there it's still operating I, in fact i had to contact them to get permission to use something and they were glad to see that you know tele hd is mentioned in the book and spoken about and i have one and it recently they just did a major update and uh, it's evolved though into two levels of business so their free version is basically skype and their business version is one that has interoperability across different uh, video conferencing platforms. But the business version is one you pay for, uh, whereas on the basic TeleHD, you buy the unit, but there's not an ongoing cost. And it works very well. Um, as for the other TV sets, one, one of the things that Microsoft did is sort of drop support for the, desk, the Skype for Windows APIs. Sort of. I say that because... They kept support for a lot of the TV vendors, and I list them all in the book. Uh, but it's all the major ones. There's a page you can actually go to the Skype website to see who, who's still being supported or was supported as of last August. Uh, but all the major ones, uh, the ones that aren't supported are ones, usually brands that I don't see in North America here or in Canada. Um, but LG, Sharp, Samsung, all those are still supported. What's The issue with the TV sets is that they all had their own operating system and trying to get developers to write for them obviously was a bit of a challenge. And I think a lot of, uh, we saw at CES this year that some of them are just going over to using Android, which makes it a lot easier. TeleHD itself is, is a forked Android platform, um, but some of the vendors are going over to more standard platforms. Also, you had to go and buy third-party webcams for the TVs, and while some of them are still available, many of the TV sets now incorporate a webcam. Uh, and, you know, it's I think the TV vendors are having their challenge learning how to play this developer game and get developer support uh, just because they, mostly I think they tend to have Linux-based operating systems and so on. Um, but that's sort of – and, and, of course – Microsoft has also added to the Xbox, but that's a totally consumer product. I went down to the local Microsoft store to see how that worked and realized, yeah, this is, even they agreed this is totally a consumer product. So it is showing up on some other Microsoft platforms. Uh, but the big ones from the business side are the um, integration of things like Outlook.com, Office 365. Let me go into a little bit of discussion of the link side of things. So Microsoft's been, you know, they've been working on Skype. They've got familiarity with it. In fact, I would say that most of the development work is now down in the, done in the Bay Area, although there's still some of the people left in Tallinn, Estonia. Um, and um, uh, they moved the back end to be on Microsoft servers. Uh, obviously, they're trying to avoid any of these outages that they used to have occasionally, that sort of stuff. Um, the, uh, um, what was I say? And they're trying to use that to also be able to access some of these applications like Office 365 and so on. 
Well, uh, at this point, Skype has announced that Link is going to be renamed Skype for Business. They are going to have a new user interface, for which I had a bit of a demonstration a while ago, uh, which looks very much like the Skype user interface. Um, if you go to the Skype blog, you can see it. And uh, um, basically, it's a case of trying to put the Skype user interface on the on the link back end. But the other big change in this is how do they get adoption? And when I was working with that free talk um, switch box, I don't know if, Michael, you got one of those. You mentioned you had the headsets. But sure. there, there was a PBX box they had at one point and um, realized that trying to do it via hardware was very expensive. Uh, that box got dropped, and we were trying to see how uh, how could Link be a, you know, Skype or Microsoft kept talking about adopting Link to involve Skype and so on, but as long as you had to go and do it and install your own uh, Link server and so on, that's a very expensive proposition for a company. I mean, they've got, they've got to support it. It's premise-based. It's expensive. But what's happened is Microsoft now has... Uh, link and we'll have Skype for Business as an add-on to an Office 365 subscription. So any one of us can go out if we have Office 365, pay another two or five dollars a month, and have access to Link. Um, and uh, that changes the whole business model there, and the whole cost of adoption and so on. And the point is that somebody on Link also can talk, have conversations with somebody on uh, Skype. So you've got cross-access there, uh, but more importantly is changing the business model, providing the server support that's required for Link, and then changing the user interface uh, to be more like the Skype user interface. And, I mean, I've I talked to people. Ask, how do, you, how do you compare the user experience between the two? Well, and I think we're only going to find that out when Skype for Business officially launches. <laughs> Uh, and there, there is an example in a recent Skype blog post. If you go to blogs.skype.com, I still think it comes up on the home page or first page. Um, but there's an example there which had some similarities. Uh, but we, I, I'm the sort of guy who says, okay, show me. And we'll see what happens when it actually comes out. Um, I do know that, in fact, the major editor I worked with in London had been on a couple of Skype or Link conversations for various reasons, and she did not find it the easiest process to work with. Um, so, but which actually reminds me of another thing: is the whole production of this book was done. Uh, all the conversations were in Skype chat. I mean, I, I talked to them a couple of times on calls, and the book itself is they they manage it through SharePoint, so you actually put your chapters up in SharePoint and bring them up and that sort of stuff. But uh, it was a great exercise in learning how to use SharePoint and how it can work. And, of course, Skype chat is what we did for all our conversations, which was very handy because especially since, you know, I had my major editor in London, England. I had a logistics editor in New York, and we also had copy editors and technical reviewer and so on located across the states. None of us have ever met, and you know, personally, and uh, yet this all came together. And it wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. You know, so. Interesting. And, and um, it, it sounds like one of the major themes is since the, the purchase by Microsoft is that 
there's maybe less emphasis on partnerships. Does that seem accurate? No, and yes, because I happen to be a Skype for BlackBerry beta tester, and all I can say is that you know the Skype for BlackBerry was actually a hybrid Android slash BlackBerry 10 uh, application. Um, in that uh, it attached to the, your directory on your BlackBerry, uh, it got notifications into the BlackBerry notifications and a couple of other integrations like that. Uh, and actually, quite frankly, on the Passport with its powerful processor and so on, uh, it's no different than using it on any of the other devices, whether it's an iPhone or an Android or whatever, uh, in terms of the speed of things and the way things come up. And, and basically, I find with a mobile device, it's a great way when I leave my office, I, I want to carry a mobile platform around. So if I see something going on in a Skype conversation and at least need to add something to it or something while I'm away, I can do that. Um, and it doesn't matter whether that mobile device is an iPhone, a Windows phone. You know, I've got them all here. There's, I don't know, I can't see my own thing. Or maybe yeah, I should stop you may, the yeah, you may want to turn off the share. Stop the sharing. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, there's my Windows phone. There's my passport. There's my iPhone. I actually have a second. I use this Z30 for another reason, too. But, you know, and there's an Android tablet sitting behind me. And some of this I need also for the work I do with Pamfax and testing out new versions of Pamfax and so on. So, mm -hmm. but you certainly get the cross-platform experience and knowing what works on each. Interesting. Uh, and you, and you mentioned, by the way, earlier. something, Michael, about Skype Anywhere, and that yeah. has essentially continued in the sense that, you know, when, when one of the conditions for Microsoft to acquire Skype, both with the FCC in the States and the European Union people, was that they would continue to support all these other uh, platforms, and they've certainly done that. Uh, and I think the Skype for BlackBerry is especially an important example of that, given that you know BlackBerry 10 doesn't have exactly the world's largest user base, um, uh, and um, and again, of course, they, you know they've they've met some of the conditions that were imposed in terms of doing the acquisition, basically. Mm -hmm. I see that uh, they've just rolled out their. Um Skype TX, which is the hardware device for broadcasters to use. Do you see that carrying on their their sort of involvement oh, in yeah. broadcasting? Well, how many how many times do you watch CNN or BBC or even here CBC News Network, and you see a Skype call, you know? And basically, what I gather is that, of course, in a television production studio, they have their own set of hardware, and they wanted to integrate. It's more a user interface thing in that they want to integrate the ability to use Skype so that it's sort of I flip a switch and I'm picking up that Skype call uh, rather than having to rely on a computer and that sort of stuff. I mean, the main issue still there is, of course, the person at the other end has to have a Skype platform, whether it's a PC or a laptop. It used to be if they wanted to ensure reasonably good quality and we're going to, knew they were going to do an interview with uh, the, like if one of the networks knew they were going to do an interview with something, and this especially happened when they were involved with the Oprah show, they would literally ship a laptop out to the person being interviewed to make sure they had a proper device that you know had enough horsepower to support sure. the Skype call. Sure, uh, but before, still this, find, before this so, hardware integration, people, I mean, I've been to broadcasters where 
they would literally use what's, a, what's called a scan converter, where they'd have a, a computer with two VGA outs, two video outs, and they would scan convert one, they'd mirror the two outputs and scan convert to get the, the video, and then they'd have to, you know, figure out the audio. It, it was it was a challenge for the kind of engineering staff that a broadcaster would have. I'm sure it becomes easier because now 720p is adhered to on TV sets as well as on Skype platforms. But, uh, yeah, well, you, you just get you get better video, and it looks like their hardware has kind of it has the same kind of capabilities that they've had on traditional um, telephone hybrids to bring telephone yeah. calls on air, yeah. where it, it that, can go between multiple calls. Yeah, and that I think that was the goal there. Is, you know, again, it's a user interface issue. How easy is it for the person in the studio? And I've been in a few TV studios. I have a very good friend who's a major producer here in Canada, and I've been down to a couple of productions. I mean, those are those are monstrous studios to to have to manage. And I've also been in studios where they produce baseball games. I had a, another friend of mine who was director of the Blue Jays baseball games. And I go down to the Rogers Center, and I'd spend the first two innings watching a production in the baseball game, and that's quite something to watch, especially since everything is live action, real time. Uh, but uh, yeah, they're pretty complex studios, and obviously this is something that makes it easier for them to integrate Skype calls into the broadcast. And I've noticed yeah. lately also that the video quality is much better because often those Skype calls would be sort of half grainy or fuzzy images on the TV set. Yeah, the uh, the ability to do it in a more formalized way comes with uh, terms of service and things. I know they've been fairly reasonably aggressive about chasing down people, making sure that they're getting proper acknowledgments and all this kind well, of stuff. Well, it's not just getting the acknowledgments. I think there's some licensing issues as well so that they get some revenue out of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I happen to know the person that's at Skype who's more or less in charge of that, and uh, he's very good at... Um, which I say, uh, uh, convincing people that there's major benefit to paying a bit to get this. Let's think for a second about the future, um, because all of this is kind of, you know, they have a lot of works in progress, but it's it's things that are, right? And that's what's described in the book. Do you have any um, any sort of educated guesses about what lays ahead? Yeah, well, obviously one thing that they've announced, and I'm still waiting to see if I can get on it, is the Skype for Web beta. And this comes back into the whole WebRTC issue in that um, I've also had a chance to sort of follow WebRTC because of a project I was doing last fall and get a handle on it. And the fundamental issue is to realize that WebRTC is basically supposed to be embedding voice and video calling within a capabilities within a browser. And it really means that developers and website developers, application developers have to go and pick up a toolkit to uh, easily put this capability into a website or into an application. Um, and that it, it's not a sort of just communications-focused client. In this case, it's a case of okay, Amazon Fire or Amazon Mayday. Uh, if you have a call, want to call their help people, you hit Amazon Mayday. Mayday. It's embedded into the Amazon Fire setup, <coughs> and um, you start the call, and you're doing a call with a support person, um, and you don't have to wait for any third-party client to come up or anything. Um, the there are attempts, to, even 
the wire application right now is using WebRTC, and somehow they're even using it on uh, on the iPhone version or the Android version of it. Uh, probably easier on Android because of Google. Um, but you know, Jonathan has hinted to me that yes, they had to make some uh, modifications to make this all work. It wasn't just a case of doing something out of the box, um, mm. and that's been one of their bigger challenges. Uh, what will Skype for Web bring? Uh, we we can only see, wait and see. I mean, it makes it possible for somebody to say run a, a support operation directly from uh, a website, possibly, but using all the features that are available in Skype. Uh, I, I think call centers is going to be a major area that try to adopt it, such as Mayday has done, and um, uh, customer support centers, that sort of stuff. Uh, but the biggest issue they're having with WebRTC right now is, you know, what is the customer pain being solved that's not already solved by the current IP-based communications offerings? And uh, and that's where, um, you know, we're going to have to see how the market evolves. And I, I take it as an example, you know, Microsoft dropped support for the desktop APIs. And when I look in retrospect, how many applications was I really using beyond the call recording applications? And, and support for the call recording applications is still there. Uh, I talk with Dick Schifferly at Pamela quite often, and I know that he went through some exercises with some Skype people, and they got that back to being fully supported in the latest versions of Skype for Windows and Mac. <coughs> um, there's a, a recording application on the Mac. I keep forgetting the name of it. Uh, I think it's just called... Um, cam for how do you want? hijack or something? E yeah, no, it's not hijack, but there's a name for it. It's in the book. Um, the uh, but it is a reasonably good call recording application. Um, and I haven't tried Vodburner lately, but uh, I haven't been able to get in touch with Jeremy because um, I sort of had to go out and confirm that everything was working before I put it in the book. Um, but, you know, the call recording applications are there, the support for the TV sets is there, but the, in, in practice, the actual development of applications that people would continuously and sustainably use just wasn't there. I can give an example now of one case where a company had a sort of old PBX call support set up, uh, which they sold to another company which... Uh, like it was a Cisco, I guess, value-added integrator or something, and they tried to migrate this other application over to a Cisco version that was twice as much per uh, seat in a monthly charge as their application was, and there was absolutely zero uptake. So there was all this development that went on, and it got acquired by somebody who didn't figure out how to use it. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, that might be the only other application I thought of that could, could be used, but a lot of the other, we, we just didn't see, you know, there was some game stuff, there were some fun to do things, but they weren't really critical to ongoing use of Skype. And so they've all gone away. Uh, I actually, um, Greg Bell at Advantix in Australia has worked around such that they have an application that allows you to uh, um, store and recall all your chat sessions. 
and they worked around the change in API, so that, that is still working too. And I don't think there ever was an API set for the Mac version, but somehow this call recording company for Mac, I think it's just called Call Recorder for Mac, um, uh, they're, still, uh, they're still doing updates. I just had to do an update yesterday. So uh, there are do, a few. Do folks like BlueJeans still support interop with Skype? They did. That was one of their claims to fame initially, but I, I don't. Well, think actually, that's one of the ones that Tele HD is supporting now in their interop offering. Mm -hmm. uh, there was Blue Jeans, and there was one other that seemed to be major ones. You can go to the Tele HD website, and you'll find out who they are. Um, and there was another company I knew of in California. Um, I had met them at a couple of CESs and so on, and they were trying to do an interoperability thing even two or three years ago, but. It's another one of those that's just disappeared off into the mist. And, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, it was somebody who had a long-term experience with uh, IP-based communications, but, you know, they obviously... I think, um, Vidtel, Vidtel was doing something. That was, it. They were, that was it. Thank you. Yes. They were actually, they were acquired by a financial services company, and they kind of had been rolled in to become an internal group within that outfit. Um, yeah. Uh, so that was a couple of years ago, yeah. Because Scott Wharton was the CEO there. Yeah, that was Scott. He, and Scott, he, I was trying to think of. Yes, yeah. Yeah, he, and he his was wife banging the drum about. Yeah, he was banging the drum about video for a long time. And well, but, he um, had, he he was one of the pioneers in developing IP-based communication stuff. So he has a long history there. Uh, but turning it into something that you know gets reasonable, and th but this does bring up another issue: is what we're seeing is. The new, a lot of the new offerings are just focused on business type or enterprise type basis. Um, there's a company out in Portland that has a couple of ex Skype people, and I forget it's the name. The, it's kind of the follow the money, isn't it? That's that's where you can yeah. monetize the effort, right? Well, and that's where you know, ironically, Wire is financed by one of the founders of Skype. So, yeah. and, and I see a lot of them now are focusing on things like uh, medical video and, and and things like that, where you can do yep. you know, remote remote well, my, and such. One of one of my sons is a psychiatrist, and he uh, at the CAMH, which is the big mental health center in Ontario, and you know he's asking me about video calls and so on. And it turns out he does a lot of video interviews with patients across the province. Uh, so yes, they're starting to heavily get into that. Uh, the, the whole medical area is going to change in the next couple of years. I mean, BlackBerry is getting heavily into supporting a lot of medical stuff, uh, partly because of Cunix. Uh, Cunix is a very robust um, uh, operating system. It works on micro kernels, and if one little, you know, this is this is Cunix. I always say it's the one that you would want to fly an airplane with. And mm -hmm. in fact, they just announced today they're in over 50 million automobiles today. If Apple wants to ride iOS uh, in an automobile, let's say a GM car, uh, OnStar runs on Cunix, okay? And Apple is a partner of Cunix, so they have to layer on top of Cunix in order to operate, um, <laughs> which is a very little-known fact, but uh, they're well, in Cunex some runs, They run on the, the Mars rover runs on Cunix. And, and exactly. There's some fairly high-profile, mission-critical kinds of things. Nuclear and a lot of the commission, actually, a lot of the commercial um, routers coming out of Cisco run on Cunix. Uh, they sort of transitioned over from the old Cisco iOS into running on Cunix. 
So, uh, and it runs nuclear power stations and that sort of stuff. So, and it's the sort of thing, you know, when you're running a car, you don't want the car to fail at some point uh, because of a software crash, and it doesn't. Uh, and Cunix has been around for 30 years. I mean, it comes out of Ottawa. I've followed the group since then because I, I used to travel to Ottawa a lot and get, uh, get filled in. And BlackBerry bought them about five, four or five years ago with the intention of doing the um, BlackBerry 10 operating system. But in the end, the new management at BlackBerry recognizes that, hey, they've got a real gem here in Cunix. And if they can integrate Cunix especially with um, the BlackBerry security networks, which includes their BlackBerry uh, servers and that sort of stuff, uh, they can they can make a very secure Internet of Things offering, mm-hmm. and which in fact they've just announced a new uh, framework out of Cunix for wireless applications on Internet of Things. So um, that, that uh, the whole BlackBerry thing should be the subject of a whole other session here someday. But it's, and we have to get I have to actually get somebody from from the company to come and speak on their behalf as well as yourself because you're kind of a little bit you're close to them but you're still at arm's length and are they are well that's another thing so we're returning to Skype for for a moment yeah um, so they're they're Skype for web has you know some obvious appeal um, have they given any indication about sort of um, extending capabilities one of the things I'm thinking about is we've seen some um, uh, binaural or stereo uh, conferencing services cropping up like Voxseat and the like. Yep. And uh, anything like that in, in their playpen? I haven't, you know, they're not giving out their roadmap um, other than when you see the announcements like they did for Voice for Web, which is still a coming thing. They've done the announcement about Skype for Business. I think one of the things you have to notice under the whole news, uh, Microsoft management and uh, the new CEO is there's a lot of stuff being announced now that has no pre-warning, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the it's um, certainly changed sort of the culture or the uh, attitude in that regards. On the other hand, he's also changed things to make sure they take full advantage of cloud opportunities and that sort of stuff. So, and. Um, I say, you know, one of the things of taking full advantage of iOS 8 on Skype for iPhone has been the fact that you can now almost treat a Skype call just like a regular phone call on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, why don't I go back to? I'm going to go sure. back to the slideshow. And I will, uh, I will say as we're coming up to the top of the hour that we'll shortly invite uh, questions from. The amassed audience. Yeah, if anybody yeah. wants to un- unmute and pipe up, here's here's the one thing I looked at when you know, and this is in the last chapter of the book is evaluating alternatives. You know, it's got to have crystal clear voice, the HD video. It's got to be available across a lot of platforms. Uh, it's got to do support for calls to landlines and mobile phones. Now, even discussing with Jonathan, he has no plans to do that. That's a major effort. But and and given hopefully IT, OTT applications become more predominant, uh, the need for that will go away. Uh, certainly you have to support multi-party conversations and, and, you know, chat voice video. Can it be hosted on PCs or a mobile? Uh, and, uh, you know, right now Skype, you have to host it on a PC, except you can do a four-person hosting of voice calls on an iOS device. Uh, how many participants in presentation mode 
uh, we're here in Hangouts where you can have a few presenters, but you can have 100 or 200 or 300 viewers of the weekly voice, over, voice user conference call. Um, the new BBM meetings allows you to set up a multi-party conversation with up to 25 participants, and this is both voice and video, from a mobile device. And that can be iOS, Android, or my BlackBerry. Um, and, you know, is the call activity logged and archived and searchable? I think that, that I find hugely useful on Skype. And the chat session persistence and buffering of messages. You know, I've got chat sessions that go back seven years, eight years. But more importantly, every time I go to that session on a different device, all the old messages come up so that I'm caught up to date. And can you mirror activity across devices and platforms? Uh, can you monitor and manage spam? And in Skype's case, it's pretty simple. You get somebody coming asking to be a contact, and you can go in and not only block them, but report them for abuse. And I'm they're sure there are a lot of very frustrated ladies in Ghana who get that treatment. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry to say that, but that's what happens. That's the reality. Uh, and of course, What's, what are the security issues involved? Everybody likes to say there's backdoors into Skype and so on. The only instance I've had a, a seen of a security breach was about four or five years ago. Skype had to work with a company called TomTom in China, and TomTom had to develop a special version of Skype, and somehow it wasn't totally locked up, and there was a big issue, and it was actually... The discovery of this problem was done by a group down at the University of Toronto here who looks into internet uh, protocols and internet sociology and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I actually got a chance to go down and interview the person and, uh, you know, his biggest issue at the time was finding somebody at Skype who would listen to him and say, hey, we got a problem. New York Times is going to know about it. You may want to get this fixed before the New York Times puts the story out. And that's mm -hmm. the only time I've really seen of a breach. Uh, but on the other hand, we can never know what the U.S. government is asking Microsoft to do and that sort of stuff because they can't talk about it without a, a threat of legal action. Right. <laughs> so, and, 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 and surely I, it is assumed at this point that they, they're capable of and, and, and providing legal <laughs> intercept. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, yeah, well, Edward, Edward, sorry, Edward Snowden actually produced some reasonably detailed information about what goes on within NSA and GCHQ with regard to Skype, I think. Yeah, but I'm sure that Microsoft is making sure those leaks don't get out uh, yeah. and reinforcing. I mean, I'm sure all of them, like whether it's Google or Facebook or Microsoft, whatever, They've all got to be out there making sure they tighten up their security. And, of course, the big player who's playing their major game right now on security is BlackBerry. So I'm um, sure that, you know, BlackBerry has, BlackBerry has seven, eight, nine years' experience with security. At one point, they bought a major encryption company based here in Toronto uh, that's still used on their devices. And, in fact, they're at the... BlackBerry had their analyst conference this morning, and they started talking about how uh, they also now offer this SecuSmart, which provides security the vo to the voice side of, uh, of a BlackBerry phone call. And it was developed in Germany, and that's what Angela Merkel's using okay, on her BlackBerry. Uh, and they've now signed a bunch of SIM license agreements 
with some carriers, about 12 carriers, but a lot more they're going to do uh, to lock up uh, using SecuSmart within uh, a carrier offering. Um, and this won't be just on BlackBerry. It'll eventually be also on Android and iOS phones. So uh, the whole security issue is a big one. I also did a slide here just saying, okay, what happens in the space? You know, FaceTime, you got to be an Apple product. Hangouts, basically, I've only seen it used in presentation modes. I know they just shut down Gtalk, and you're supposed to use scan, uh, Hangouts for that. Where I really see it is occasionally you can send chat messages from Gmail messages and so on. But it's not primarily a communications setup. We are, some of us here are also participating in Wire on a group chat there. Uh, beyond talking to people like Randy and, and Michael and it could be James, uh, you know, I'm not finding anybody outside that group using it, although Jonathan tells me they're getting the expected level of adoption right now, and they, they're still gradually bringing it out. It's not going to be fully out there for another year or two. <coughs> WhatsApp chat-focused. I have WhatsApp running on one of my BlackBerry 10 devices, and that's the only one I can have it run on. I can't get it to run a, have it run on my iPhone or others because they have different phone numbers. Uh, Facebook Messenger, hard to say what's going on there. The, during the writing of the book, I went and tested the Facebook video and turned out they're still using that old Skype infrastructure they put in. Um, although yesterday or this week, the Facebook 8 conference, they did announce they're going to have APIs for Messenger and that sort of stuff, so that's still an evolving space. Uh, BBM does do chat, voice, and video, and they've taken advantage of some of the QNIX technology there because uh, QNIX has some great technology for uh, not only voice and video in the car. I've seen demonstrations of this, but they even do the spatial stuff that you were talking about that Voxeat does. Um, uh, but again, BBM, a BBM account can only work on one mobile device. On the other hand, on BlackBerry Blend, I now follow my BBM conversations on my PC using BlackBerry Blend, which reflects a lot of your BlackBerry activity onto a PC. Um, hmm. BBM meetings just came out a couple of months ago. And that I mentioned you can host up to 25% participants from a mobile device, and that's both voice and video, and has some other neat features. I hope to do a post on that soon. Uh, Skype for Business, you know, is bringing sort of enterprise-grade uh, Skype activity down to the small-medium business level, and uh, <clears throat> I've talked about the integration. And then, of course, WebRTC is, you know, again, it's an issue of integrating voice and video into individual applications and websites, and that's going to be a slow evolution, I'll just say, because you've got to get toolkits that make it easier for developers to do these things and so on. So, um, yeah, let's go with, uh, with any questions. I'll stop the sharing here. All right, questions from the audience. And let me take a look and see what we got going on. Uh, we have oh, we have a dozen or so people on ZipDX. You can star six to unmute yourself uh, if you are muted and want to pose a question. Uh, and Andy, Andy is waving. Andy. Go ahead, Andy. Uh -huh. There are a couple of things here. I really, um, I'm, I'm more interested in the technical details of what goes on. And in mobile terms, I'm really interested in, in, in uh, the, the battery use. Um, and to give you an example, 
um, yesterday traveling up to London and back on the train when I lose connectivity quite often uh, different um, clients running on the phone use different amounts of battery power and, and they were used pretty much the same I would say throughout throughout the day but uh, so in, in this case Skype used 12% of my battery um, throughout the day why I used 2% and the true phone client actually only used 1% of my battery so are, are they still doing any more work on that are they trying to improve that it, I mean, it was saying low signal is the reason yeah I guess you know, you have to realize that if there's low signal, and I've, I've had a lot of RF experience because I used to do magnetic resonance stuff, and they're nothing more than amateur radio stations. Uh, uh, we used to do the, uh, use the amateur radio station ham, handbook to build our NMR spectrometers. Um, the, you know, I could see trying to pull in a signal uh, requiring more battery use and so on. But the real, from my point of view, is when Skype for iPhone first came out, my iPhone might last four to five hours. Today, it's not a significant issue, and I might get, uh, you know, I don't do a lot of activity. I might get a day or two out of a battery charge, uh, but, and you know, it's not my primary phone, uh, my long shot, but um, uh, I call it more my electronic briefcase for all the applications that are on it. Uh, but... Um, uh, now, the BlackBerry people themselves, of course, were all, always known for managing bat battery issues, uh, and certainly on the Bla on the BlackBerry Passport, it's got a huge battery, which is allowed because of the size, and I basically have to just I just put it on a charger every night. I don't have to worry about losing it through the day, and uh, that sort of thing. It's it's going to be a function of now what's helped the iPhone a lot is like what battery the thing that was originally draining the battery on iPhone or Skype or Skype for iPhone was the fact that it was trying to do presence sensing all the time and when you have 700 Skype contacts and it's trying to do presence sensing that's going to drain the battery uh, they moved that over so that you know if you're not in Skype it's sitting there sort of in background but not active and only when somebody comes in with something do you get a signal or a notification that there's something happening. And then you have to actually go into the application <coughs> to actually use it, whether it's chat, voice, or video calls. So that was a major issue they've addressed and came about partly because of the evolution of the iOS operating system itself. And, of course, with iOS 8, the, they've taken advantage of some of these cross-platform capabilities or cross cross-application capabilities that are in iOS 8. Um, but, you know, it's still, I'm sure if I ran my iPhone all day, I might get eight, eight nine hours out of it at most. Um, it is certain, it's certainly better than it was. I, I'll grant you it's, it's, it's better yeah. than it was, but it's, it's still not ideal. It's certainly not as good as uh, certain other applications. So that there's perhaps room for more improvement there. Yeah, and even on the... Uh, Passport, you can go into the device monitor and see how much battery usage is being done by each application. And it's in the case of Skype, it's it's down well down below one percent usually. Yeah, I remember Jim, a couple of years ago we used to show, didn't we, how Skype for uh, iOS was, must have been designed for Canadian people to drive around because it acts as a as a hand warmer for you as you drive yeah. around in these sub Arctic <laughs> conditions. 
The real Michael? Yeah, I've got another one as well. And I've got one as well, but you go first, Andy. Okay, all right. Um, well, we, we, having done some, some looking at, at the various uh, codecs that are, are used around in, in, in these things, uh, it's Skype originally, of course, with Silk um, and Link, um, and inside Microsoft Link for, for wideband using uh, the Microsoft Audio codec, and for conferencing Siren 14. We seem to have some incompatibilities here. Have they, have they changed the, uh, the the way that uh, that Mike is actually uh, sorry that um, Skype is actually uh, talking in terms of codecs? Or have they aligned the two? Do we have transcoding happening somewhere in a server? What, what, what's well, well somewhere about a year or two ago, they made a big issue about the fact that Silk became part of the Opus specification, mm -hmm. uh, and there were there was Silk, and there was one other that. You know, Silk took care of all the audio bandwidth from, say, 15 kilohertz down, and one Kelp. other that took advantage of the music bandwidth so you could get up to the 22 kilohertz. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to, you know, we're not told. I, maybe I should look in the. Uh, um, uh, I haven't looked at the. You, you can look at your your Skype activity and the tools and options and see what's happening. I haven't looked at that lately to see what codec is being used. But I would have a suspicion they have to be thinking about using Opus for everything, uh, especially given they're also looking at Skype for web, which will have well, to and, use and, Opus. And you have a, there is a kind of a, uh, a compatibility there in that I believe it's probably not that difficult to, to take a Silk stream and turn it into an Opus stream. You'd have to be proxying the media, of course, to do it, but, but they're... Uh, there might be slight bitstream changes, but it wouldn't be too much. Yeah, I, I would assume that the migration of uh, uh, the Skype for Business will also involve making sure they got sort of industry standard codecs and that sort of stuff. Um, and who, I don't even know what uh, I forget what codec they're even using now for the video part. H two six four four adaptive, some form of adaptive H two six four. Yeah, H two sixty four, especially like this webcam that I'm using has H two sixty four built in, and uh, they are, otherwise I think they're still using the VP eight or whatever it is from that company that Google bought that had the video codecs. Something that might interest mere mortals in all of this is uh, the announcement of instantaneous translation. I was talking to Michael about this, and I don't know how much you know about that, Jim, but uh, they're going to be uh, starting a beta. Well, go ahead. Maybe you do know something. Well, I'm not a lot. I know they've started a beta, and you can be trying it out. Uh, I just haven't had the time to explore it. Um, you know, Today, all my conversations are in English. Uh, there was a time I worked in Germany, and I... It's fairly fluent in German. But you have to admit uh, this is kind of exciting for people who it, need it. It is. I who think it's it? exciting you know, from the don't. point of, of you know, being able to talk to people in other languages and not having to have a third party. Uh, yeah, Michael boy. was yeah, mentioning to me last night about how ZipDX yeah. does si simultaneous translation uh, and, a lot, and basically means that you don't have to have an interpreter in the middle of doing a conversation. And we're a long way from the machine translation being anywhere near as good as a real interpreter, obviously. So what ZipDX does um, is going to be far superior to, to anything Skype or anybody else can come out with. But it is 
in my opinion, a positive step. Uh, it's one of the few things that impresses me in what they're talking about. Yeah. The I signed up, and I think Michael did too, for the beta, even though I don't care. I just wanted to know, keep abreast of it. And the immediate thing I got back, and you saw this, Michael, is that, yeah, we're talking about this at, for the end of 2015 and Spanish yeah. only. Well, that's great, and I applaud them. I think that's fantastic, and hopefully it'll work out well. But it's a, it's a great idea. It's, it's kind of an exciting thing. As opposed to yet another HD codec, or you know, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's cool. another thing that's that's going to appear incrementally. I mean, we've yeah. seen uh, um, things like what's the big dictation application? Um, you know, Dragon hey, Dictate. To, pardon, Dragon Dictate. Dragon. You know, we've seen it evolve to the point where it's become quite reliable now. They have different dictionaries for different. Uh, 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 applications such as medical or what, whatever else. When I was involved with it, it was medical applications I was involved in. But it, it's evolved to the point where, you know, it's now, it's just there. The technology is there. It's sort of like HD video is there now yeah. and nobody's worrying about it, uh, that sort of thing. Well, Google's, when you say, okay, Google, and you could do this in several languages, uh, the it's key to the language of your phone setup, but it actually works way better than I expected. Uh, so, you know, that's Dragon was $250 or something. I think I bought it once. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's worked very well. But uh, we've come a long way since then. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just haven't found a need to use a speech-to-text thing, or it just hasn't worked into my workflow. Well, it's important uh, for yeah, people honestly, to have problems. I, I have a Dragon license, and I just, I've had it, a year and a bit now, and I just haven't, as you say, it just hasn't found its way into use. Uh, it's it's interesting, and it does work reasonably well. The, um, that 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 technology is best used, in my opinion, and I use it every day almost. If you really need to respond to a text where you're going to say something like "I'll be there in a minute," that kind of thing, it's really excellent. Or SMS, um, you know, you could yeah, you could tell, you can say "Okay, Google." <laughs> I shouldn't say this; my phone will light up. Uh, you can say, you know, find me such and such, or you can ask a question. But the real advantage of that um, has to do with a quick reply to something. And if you yep. want to talk to your watch or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And that the, newest well. BlackBerry, the newest BlackBerry OS actually had something called Administrator, and you can give voice commands to your BlackBerry phone and say, BBM Alex Saunders. Okay, and it will give him a message and send it out on BBM. Uh, or, um, and where this becomes very useful, of course, is in an automobile where, especially in Ontario here, uh, distracted driving can cost you a lot of money, if not your life. Uh, actually, actually had a friend get crashed into the other day because of a distracted driver. Fortunately, he's okay, but when you're traveling 120 kilometers an hour, you really don't want that to happen. There's a young 20-year-old girl whose daddy gave her a yellow sports car three weeks ago that is no longer in existence. The girl is. The car isn't. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably just as well for the car. But, uh, yeah, that's that's awful. And so, yes, uh, it's one of the greatest things about somebody's calling me on Hangout for whatever reason. Anyway. All right. Well, let's make one last round of, of calling for questions. We've we've droned on for a while, and it's actually been pretty good. I must admit, in the way of filling, while we wait for people on ZipDX to unmute themselves, Carl, this is your cue, buddy. Get on it. Um, I must admit that um, my use of Skype has waned 
but it's only waned for for two reasons. One is um, the number of people that I'm IMing with, which was principally what I was doing, has has narrowed quite a lot, and and we this group has been using the wire beta, and the wire beta has been quite compelling, um, but it doesn't do everything that Skype does, and I'm giving some serious thought to um, Office 365, which probably means a Skype for business knee link kind of connection eventually. Yeah, you can get the link connection now. It's $2 a month for a limited version and three, $5 a month add-on for a full feature version. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it might well be worth uh, worth investigating, uh, particularly for the video capability. And I, I, I like the idea of being able to interrupt with hardware systems and uh, that's I think where where yeah. link has some some legs yep uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that all turns out so James had a question <coughs> but his mic Mike is muted ah there we go not muted anymore yeah one of the uh, the issues that I see with Skype is the fact that it's very difficult to get into Skype from outside Skype. Uh, it's a little bit easier on Link. In fact, we demonstrated how to federate with Link um, uh, a couple of months ago, or a few months ago, when we had Terry Gold on. Um, but um, are you aware of any plans that Skype has to open up Skype to other domains? Now, what do you mean by other domains? Federation, basically. Um, Interact with yeah, other yeah, the F word. It's almost uh, the time for Matthew from Matrix to beam down and uh, well, wave here's his arms the thing, around. You know, and, I, I, and I said this to Randy in an email yesterday. I says, I really appreciate Matthew's enthusiasm, and he's an example of, you know, here's a developer who has an idea trying to get it out. There's a couple of issues there. One is it really doesn't have the backing of a big player like Google or Microsoft or Facebook or whatever. Um, and... Those are the organizations that have seem to have the marketing drive to get this information out. Yeah, but that's true, Jim. Once upon a time, I kind of remember there was this funny little proprietary protocol called Skype, which also didn't have the backing of the big players either. Well, but it had it had two different things going for it. One, it was terribly expensive to use a phone in Germany. I found out when I was there when it was possible to use one, and then the rest of Europe. And I think that drove the first Skype adoption was in Europe, and that drove that. Uh, and um, well, Skype, Skype was simple, and the user interface was that brutally was the, easy to use, wasn't it? Yeah, That's and that was the other factor. Is Skype? I remember even talking to Stefan Oberg when he came to a conference in Toronto in 20, 2006, and he pointed out Skype was the easiest thing to set up and use. It still had the complication. You had to find out where you might plug a um, uh, plug a speaker and a headset into your PCs in those days, but that's become pretty easy in the meantime. Uh, and now I have USB ports on the front of my PC. Uh, and um, uh, but basically, yes. And that was the second factor. One was making voice calls in Europe was expensive, even compared to Canada. I mean, you could have a bill ten times as much as we would have here. And secondly was, you know, it was easy to set up and make use. They were a pioneer. That was a major disruptive change in those days. Yeah, One they were the, the only major... pioneers. There were other pioneers 
Uh, well, there was uh, local was tech and a couple of others that were trying to do some things. But in fact, Scott Wharton was involved in some of those and so on. But the biggest deal had to do with not having to port forward and stuff like that. What Skype, yeah. the main feature of Skype was that it had, for the average person, in other words, that it had good quality, very good quality, better than inter- than uh, international uh, transcontinental phones usually. And yep. second of all, that because you could use SIP, but the problem was you had to set all that up. Skype somehow figured out the problem of uh, firewalls and so on. It was very rare, except in a country that totally blocks it, that Skype couldn't get through. And I think that was the number one feature of Skype, in my opinion. Yeah, Skype was the AOL. Was. Now, here's the thing that some of us, notably me, uh, find disgusting with Skype, is that the user interface got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And now it's you know completely out there to where even if you have the degree in computer science you can't use it so maybe they'll bring dial that back a little bit because it, it really got to be well, stupid the, where it was, where it was are, there is, grandma used it you know years ago but now it's pretty hard well no i mean the biggest still the biggest application i'm ready to do on the personal side is the grandparent call and grandmas are still using it um yeah, they haven't updated they're still on skype 3 well, no, it's forcing the updates these days. Um, the uh, uh, I'm going to say that uh, there is actually when uh, I didn't want to write a lot about the options in Skype for Windows to- Desktop, and when Skype Seven for Windows came out and there were these issues, I went back in and I I've listed in the book a list of steps to take to get back to close to what you used to have on the Skype Six interface, um, and. Uh, and the bottom line is that you know 300 million people a month are still using Skype, you know, of which probably. Well, yeah, that's true, but a lot of that is because Skype got in there and established such a firm yep. base, uh, and and that usage has continued on, even though yep. the the really inspired people in the Baltic states who put it together have all been let go, and uh, we've now got Microsoft Microsofting the whole thing, so all of a sudden. Um, the marvelous peer-to-peer um, arrangement has gone out of the window, and everything, all the signaling now goes through Microsoft-owned super nodes. Well, well, my understanding is on one-to-one calls, the peer-to-peer is still there. Uh, it's the yeah, chat. but the signaling, no, the signaling still goes um, through the Microsoft well, um, infrastructure. Well, you need that, James, in order. For, you need that, James, yeah. in order for the NSA to keep the metadata. Well, exactly right, and that's one yeah. thing that really hey, guys, uh, annoys me. Signaling, sig- signaling support is the biggest inhibitor to WebRTC evolution. We, we've been talking all this time. Jim, we haven't really plugged the book. Let's, uh, yeah, you plug. Yeah. Okay. When, when can we have a talk? Can we have it in electronic format, please? Yes, it's available on, you know, I actually mentioned that at some point in one of the slides, yes, but you did. You did. go to Amazon on any country Amazon and you will find it and you'll have the option to get a print version or an electronic version. Right. Now, one of the interesting things Amazon has done is that A-Press wanted the print version <coughs> to be $13.99. Amazon changed it to $9.99 for the simple reason that if if a book is between $2.99 and $9.99, the royalty to the author is 70%. Right. Over ten dollars, and it's thirty-five percent. Right, right. So they actually did a press. They did myself a favor by making it nine ninety-nine uh, in terms of the commission okay. given. 
And you can do us a favor. You can do us a favor, those of you who are listening, if you're interested in Jim's book, and I, I know it's an excellent book, and here you got the second edition, all of these things that you've been hearing about, go to VUC.me. There he's showing the book, Experience Skype to the Max. You, it's easy to find. I was looking for it today, and I found it immediately. Go to VUC.me. There's an Amazon banner. Click on that banner. We get 20 cents or something, whatever. But at that point, you'll be at Amazon, and then you can buy that book, and you can buy it in Kindle format, electronic format, or print that's for the yep. uh, united states of course but uh, wherever you are you can order the book uh, and get it for yourself well, amazon is worldwide you could also get it off a press themselves but a press will do more of the marketing through some of their programs apparently they have a massive educational program at springer and it'll be marketed through that right. and of course the a press program itself if you subscribe for a year you get access to all their books for a year and so on but yeah i just got the print version Wednesday, Tuesday, Looks earlier good. this week. So uh, um, it, it's out there. I would appreciate reviews on Amazon. Uh, A-Press tells me it's important to get those first reviews to be positive. Yep. Uh, and uh, we certainly had some good reviews on the previous edition that helped. I loved the one that came from a person who I worked with for several years in, uh, back in my instrumentation selling days where he said, I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Very good. And a very important question, Jim. Uh, yeah. Am I, am I in, did I did I make it into a in, into an illustration? Uh, I think I first... into you might be into some of the things where I show contacts and so on. Is it James <laughs> oh, Bodie well, in the contacts list? But I tell you, I'll tell you what did make it into the book. When I'm talking about going overseas and roaming charges. I did suggest that people look into a true phone world plan. Oh, excellent. Well, it's worth buying 20 copies just to distribute just for that, I think. There you go. And, uh, of course, that's based on the fact that TruePhone gave me this multi-country SIM that I used so successfully in Europe last summer. And um, instead of a $6,000 bill from Rogers, uh, I got... No bill, but even if I had been on the TruePhone World Plan, it only would have been $180 for the 12 gigabytes of data we transferred. Yeah, and of course, other other multi-industry sims are available, but they're not quite as good. Ah. Right. Um, you found the no, TruePhone instead of getting frankly, larger. If a, if a business is, has a lot of people traveling to Europe, they better get the TruePhone sim. There Thanks you go. Thanks for the plug, Jeff. Pardon? And, uh, we're all going to rush out and buy the book. We are. We're going to click okay. on the VUC banner so that the VUC gets a few cents. All kidding aside. Yeah, I got your cough. I think this is about it. Unless anybody else has any final uh, questions. Somebody lurking out there in uh, 50X, I think. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Carl. Barely. Go, man. Go. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I, had a, I wasn't sure if you could hear me. So uh, uh, I have a question about Quarter Deck Expanded Memory Manager 386. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, remember, I remember. I used that with my packet radio ham stuff eons yeah. ago. Oh, hey. Yeah, I you remember talk when about, it was, when it was... talk about the software product that made me a ton of money? Go ahead. <laughs> Actually, I did have a question about that, even though, but, you know, feel free to shoot it down. When it was doing that optimization scheme, um, sometimes it would, uh, it, it would, you know, Come up with uh, it, it was trying to, uh, to to basically optimize uh, the 
the, the, the expanded, uh, the, I guess the extended memory, not the expanded memory or something, camera, which is which, but in any case, sometimes it, was, it would have to do like, uh, like four to eight trillion iterations. And sometimes it would do it very quickly, and other times it would take a long time, even though it had the same number of iterations. And so I'm wondering why that was. You know, uh, it's 20 years since that product was out. <laughs> I'm, it's one of the cases where my senior moments comes into play. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what it, I do remember is they brought out a, a feature called Stealth, and yeah. Yeah. that when that came and that overrode some unused memory up in that 640k to one megabyte range, yeah. and that gave us a ton of new business. Um, uh -huh. There was one author on the out at the time who was on BBS services and so on, and he gave a huge plug for stealth, and boy did we have C sales go up significantly. Um, That's fantastic. But, so are you you're, you're one of the original uh, coders of that? No, I wasn't coding. I ran the Canadian operation. I basically, when I was with AST Computers, uh, AST included DeskView with all their computers or with their add-on boards, actually. It was because the, uh, DeskView took advantage of all these new add-on boards that were coming out that took you out to all of, like, three, gigab three megabytes of RAM in your PC. I had an Intel above board with four megabytes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Oh, four much, and four and times as much as anyone I could ever possibly need. Out, when AST hired me, they told me, oh, you were the first person to buy our Advantage board, which took us out to three megabytes. So, uh, But anyways, <laughs> we sold a lot of PCs that way, and then Quarterdeck hired me in to run their Canadian operation, uh, and that's where I got involved in DeskView and QMM. QMM was sort of a surprise because it was one of these products out there that people were using. The distribution in Canada was dreadful in the sense that they had one smaller distributor authorized, and Ingram and Maricel were bringing it in over the border every night, and we got them quickly to just order directly out of uh, out of Quarterdeck and gave them the appropriate support. Uh, but it, you know, we moved a lot of product. I have. Two awards from Maricel sitting up on a shelf here for having the top-selling PC utility in Canada. So. Fantastic. So how did you distribute that? I mean, I'm trying to remember back then if we downloaded that from, like, directly over a dial-up modem or from some BBS, or was that something that you had to physically distribute media for? It was a fairly small executable. You basically had to physically distribute it. The only people uh -huh. who were getting it downloaded were those who were software pirates using BBS platforms. That's a whole other story because we had some dealings with the RCMP on that. Uh, uh -huh. The most interesting of which was that there was an, a utility with QEMM called Manifest. And what I called yeah, it right, was, right, right. Yeah, it was, it was the confessional for all the sins of, P, of PC hardware design. But also, if you and you could fax it in to have us look at it and so on. Well, somebody faxed it in, and the serial number they used happened to be the one that we knew, knew was used by all the pirates. Would you believe I'm probably the only person who has caused an audit on Revenue Canada? <laughs> and, they, and somebody at Revenue Canada got caught pirating our software. Uh, I had an RCMP contact at the time. Yeah. A revenue in Canada, is that kind of like the is that kind of like the IRS 
or is that more like that the is Canada's uh, version of the IRS? Got it. Okay. So I claim to be the only person who's had a successful audit of Revenue Canada. They they operate under a, a slightly less military motto than the IRS does. Yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, they're yeah. getting they're getting more military these days. But anyways, um, yeah. they still but they you know you, they are yes you can work with them if you have to. Anyways, that's the yeah. story there. Interesting so, stuff. Yeah, QEMM made us the money too because we were able to run software. Uh, you know, sort of suitably well because we were u using a word perfect for a kind of like desktop publishing because we were one, kind of one of the, we were running Oracle for DOS and we needed, we had these huge, you know, multi gigabyte, uh, you know, uh, data files way back when, 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 when uh, storage was, you know, $2,000 for a, a half meg, I'm sorry, for half gig. Yep. And, uh, and so, yeah, so then we had to do these enormous merges and uh, and basically being able to uh, get the amount of real mode memory you know up that would dictate the the number of additional merges we could do per instance and so to add just a couple hundred k was that you were of course uh, you know adding to the like each additional bit of memory you could add was another merge document and the documents were small in contrast to the data sets and the executables so it was actually hugely beneficial this is way back in like. That would, be, that would be the combination of DESCU and the QMM helping you with that. That's right. Um, and in fact, I have to say that one of the biggest uses, there were a couple of major uses of QMM. One was bulletin board services. People would set up bulletin right. board services and get 10, 10 phone lines going into their PC. Um, and the other interesting enough is when I got transferred down to Los Angeles and we were doing a restructuring of Quarterdeck, one day, a, a check for a six-figure number showed up. And we're like, what the heck is this? Well, I happen to know who it was. It was a developer in Vancouver who had developed a restaurant system that got adapted. Initially, I used to see it a lot at Whistler when I go up skiing there and so on and see it in BC, but it went across Canada mm -hmm. and the US. It was called the Squirrel Restaurant System. And basically, they had a server in the kitchen, and each terminal in the restaurant was a desk view window. And oh. would you believe that that was still running in the local Irish pub here until about two years ago? <laughs> it was the last switch of the software world. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's well, it's slightly, slightly different use of, of QEMM as well. Um, I uh, Years and years and years ago, about this time, strangely enough, uh, working uh, on a reactor monitoring system and, and the, the build process, which was uh, a completely custom process that we, that we uh, developed, used to take about a day and a half to run. But with QEMM and uh, extra, I think it was, uh, we, I think we used to get a three meg um, RAM drive yep. uh, available, and that cut the build time down to about four hours. And it made such a difference. It was fantastic. So thank you for that, Jim. <laughs> well, don't thank me. Thank the people who developed it. Uh, actually, I just saw yesterday the primary developer of that. Uh, his father passed away this week. Oh. Um, but um, the uh, no, the Larry Meyer and Dan Spear were great guys, excellent developers. And the person who actually runs Absolute or does a CTO for Absolute uh, which is a, um, a laptop and 
monitoring thing so that if you have a stolen PC, you can recover it. Uh, he was the person who developed the stealth algorithm that I talked about. And, uh, oh, he, yep, yep, yep. He really loved to work right down at the bit level with these things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, anyway. Any more questions? I have a question about uh, IP communications. <laughs> something, uh, Carl, that, that, Carl that what are you talking here. on? You're horribly distracted. I'm talking on the, uh, the, the worst possible uh, you know, thing right now, which is like uh, the DSM mobile headset. <laughs> exactly. A PRS80 with a cassette drive for long-term storage, for archiving. So, um, yeah, no, I'm driving. I was on HD, and now I'm driving. So, um, anyway. Overdriving, uh, but, actually. Yeah. I don't know. More I don't know. static than I've heard since the last amateur radio call. Seriously, yeah. I, I'm sorry. Maybe, that, maybe it's better if I move my phone. I could go on to my car's in, integrated Bluetooth. But uh, I, my understanding from other people is that it sounds worse than than my uh, than my There's no way headset. It so there's no way. Is that right? Uh, you're, you're overdriving uh, the input. I don't know uh, what. We can turn your. I can talk. I can talk more quietly. That might that might help. Um, so yeah. In any case, if you can understand my question, it is. Do you think that uh, you know, Skype and Link and and these kind of applications will receive resistance, um, in particular from from enterprise, given sort of the reputation for kind of force feeding and product end of life and uh, you know lack of uh, you know a robust uh, migration path and, and things like that. I mean, in my you know years of experience, you know creating and and, and operating enterprise systems, uh, you know that is probably one of our greatest costs. It's not the money we've spent on software, not the money we've spent, you know, uh, you know. Uh, you know, maintaining and licensing and educationalism—it's basically this thing where a company like, you know, like you know, Microsoft will end of life, you know, a whole product line without a robust migration path, and you know, so then we are left scrambling trying to kind of, you know, reinvent something that isn't—it isn't broken. Do you know what I mean? And and so you know, the ability to choose really durable uh, systems is is an, is a is a deceptively significant part of running a successful, uh, you know, business long-term. Because, you know, if you can't, you know, forklift upgrades of, of integral systems never happen. Those businesses, you know, disappear before those successful, you know, evolutions and migrations and things can happen. So, you know, I've, I'm, always, I'm always cautious about, um, you know, about companies with reputations for kind of shooting products in the head or saying, oh, you know, Skype. I know that you use Skype, and Skype is now integral to your workflow. But but now that's all part of this other ecosystem that we're going to force you into. So even though it it helps them, it creates a dollar of revenue for them. It might actually have you know nine dollars of externalized cost to us. And so kind of keeping those motivational priorities between between the you know the publishers of services and software and and our motivational priorities is, is really important. So so I'm always I'm always uh, you know cautious about. Uh, you know about companies like that. Microsoft is one of those companies, in my uh, in my observation and experience. And I see a little bit of that going on with Skype right now, where they're just sort of like morphing it into this other thing. And so and and, and like Link and 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 uh, things like that. They're they're all so easy to get into, and they're kind of designed to be hard to get out of. And so then they sort of you know got they've kind of got you by the short hairs. And so you know so far my solution to those kind of things is to 
steer clear of, of those kinds of solutions. Um, so I don't know if you, I mean, maybe I'm, you know, maybe, maybe my concerns are unique. If, you know, I don't know if you've thought about that or if other people have expressed similar concerns. That's a mouthful. Sorry. I'm still here. You guys there? I lost you. You guys still there? You guys there? Can't hear you. You guys there? Muted. Ah, now uh, I hear something. I now think, I hear something. I think the ZipDX feed was put on hold. I I, I think you're right I about that. Right about that. And now it's being echoed. Now it's being echoed. No. <laughs> Hello, Carl. Because I can. Hey. I can see the bridge activity. Oh, there we go. All right, start, start again with that answer, Jim. Boy, oh today God. is really a great day. Whoa, okay. Uh, Got to remember it. Can you not just do a what backwards wind and start again? <laughs> what was the question? Well, the, the question was IT implementation and more IT, IT migration of a legacy product into a new version of the product. And all I was saying is, you know, first off, Skype, per se, as we know it today, is going to continue to exist as more or less a consumer product, and I say a small-medium business product, because you can do just about everything free, except maybe you have to pay for calls to landlines. Um, but on the enterprise side, um, I think it's important these days that you know the company itself has to have an infrastructure in terms of its sales, marketing, customer feedback, customer support operations, such that the company is working with various IT companies to ensure that they have um, understand the migration path to get feedback on what works, what's not working, and so on. Um, and I used the example of the BlackBerry BES server, which now BES 12 supports iOS, Android, Windows Phone, and BlackBerry devices. Whereas people who were on the legacy BES 5 server, you know, they gave them an easy migration path. They gave them a, several months to try it out for free, and it's only now that they're turning on and saying, "Okay, we got to get some revenue for this." And um, the uh, and and you do the same with, I think, in the Microsoft case, as I said earlier, the biggest thing is the fact that. Uh, you can add a link connection or you can add a Skype for Business connection uh, for 2 or $5 a month. Got rid of that whole on-premise overhead cost of, of a link server. And um, it really makes sense only for companies with more than 1,000 users to have a link server these days. Um, and yet they're bringing... Link or Skype for Business down into something that small medium businesses will consider if they want an enterprise grade product, and of course making it enterprise grade is Microsoft's challenge. They've got to make sure that that all works. Do you think do you think people are are um, cautious in approaching uh, you know a company that's that sort of you know with Microsoft's or I mean Microsoft's not the only one that does this, but you know just kind of companies in in general who. You know who, um, who who tend who tend to like not put at the begin at the top of their design priority this kind of um, you know ability to migrate a history of of like end of lifeing products leaving companies in the lurch uh, things like that. I mean th those things are far 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 more expensive. The disruption that happens as a result of you know some 
company disappearing or some product getting end of life, uh, you know, the, the, the cost of those are so much higher than licensing and whether you do or you don't have on-premises facilities for your, for your call, et cetera. So, so um, I guess my, my, my biggest concern in thinking about, you know, some communications, I mean, communications are so fundamental to almost any business. So to yep. consider the idea of using something that's so ephemeral and, and evolving like, like Skype or, or to use something, you know, from a company with a history of, you know, you know not being the best about migration paths, uh, like, like Microsoft and other companies, uh, you know, I would, you know, I, I would, maybe I'm just kind of being an old fuddy-duddy, but, but I just, you know, I, it just seems like, seems like a very short, like, it seems like that would, you know, perhaps be questionable, questionable judgment given, you know, given the, given how, how important and how durable communication systems have to be. You can't be sort of reinventing and refactoring and doing, you know, forklift upgrades. So I, I, I guess, yeah, I would be concerned, and I wonder. That's if where you, you get a product mature to the point where people are used to it. It's incorporated into workflows in the company and that sort of stuff. Yeah. It becomes very tough to ensure that when you do a migration, you have the appropriate backward compatibility. Right. Um, I think that's the, the biggest challenge. And hopefully it, it comes down to more of if you have a proper part product marketing product management group, those are some of the issues they should be taking into account. You know, I, I, I was involved in such an exercise at Quarterdeck where we were, we basically said, what do we need to do to taking a product all the way from being newly launched through to end of life? And right. it's, it's not just the feature part that counts, it's also how do we make sure that there's a seamless transition uh, for the users? Exactly, and, and then and then of course you know but we've had some major transitions like going from DOS to Windows, you know, sure. which was effectively about a five-year process for Microsoft. You know, from the time they got 3.1 out until they launched Windows 95 was a five-year process, and well, during that time, witness, witness that they're going to give away Windows 10 as a way of not having all the hangers on on Windows 7. Yep. Well, even the Windows 8 upgrade from Windows 7 was free. So, it was? Windows 7 had an expense with it. Yep. Huh. Yep. Oh, so Windows started. 7 had an expense with it. <laughs> I see. Maybe it's because it was uh, 8 Enterprise versus 8 Pro or 8 Personal or Home. Yeah, I think, I was just going to say, I think Windows 8 Enterprise, there were, you know, they went into their software licensing modes for Enterprise. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 I think that's probably a good idea. Uh, to, I think that's a really important part of brand management, just in terms of, you know, if somebody's going to. And we've always, you know, we've, we've always had great migration paths, which, um, you know, with Oracle. Sorry, I'm noisy here. I might have to just mute myself until I get out of the wind. Um, yeah. So whatever. I just. Yeah, that's a that's a inherently challenging problem, and there's a lot of uh, you know funny incentives that kind of conflicting conflicts of interest between companies and their and their and the clients. But I'm I'm hoping that uh, you know consumers, uh, IT decision makers, become more informed so that they can sort of uh, make better decisions about or, and you know whatever that the 
that, that the, the, the companies, the reputation of companies for, you know, creating solutions that, you know, with, with migration paths has become as important to people as it is, in, in fact. So, and, well, and, you know, and we even see it with things like iOS 8. You know, when they first brought it out, they quickly had to have an iOS 8.0.1 because there was a, or I think it was iOS 8.0.1, they quickly had to have an iOS 8.0.2 because there were issues with the 8.0.1. Right, right. I mean, it's such a tough problem, right? I mean, how do you, how do you evolve? You know, how do you change while keeping things the same, right? That's part of the reason that, you know, they, they want 100,000 beta testers of Windows 10. Uh, <laughs> frankly, Windows 10 seems to be getting a lot of positive reviews from these people. So right. uh, I, know, uh, I know one person who's testing it out, and he can be very critical, but he is quite delighted with what he's seeing with Windows 10. Yeah, I have yeah. VM that I'm... I'm getting to use. That's right, Michael. You mentioned you have a, a virtual machine running there with Windows 10. Yep. So chime chime in on your comment, uh, Jim, on Windows 8. Uh, no, uh, sorry, on iOS 8. I never got to iOS 8. I got to 7 was the biggest. But uh, several times from 5 on, uh, it's funny how, you know, because there's so many Apple users and they're so religious, they don't say anything about this, but... We lost, I mean, I had an iPhone that couldn't get on uh, voice networks. I had an iPhone that couldn't get on Wi-Fi networks, depending on the, and, and yeah, they fixed it eventually. And it didn't affect a lot of people. It, only, it depended on your carrier and it depended on your country and so yeah. on. But there were huge numbers of foreign posts, uh, forum posts, like you'd have people in Greece and Estonia or whatever. I mean, these yep. are still customers and... Uh, because it didn't affect people in San Francisco, maybe it didn't get a lot of noise made, but they eventually did have to correct. So, you know, a, a product like Apple that is ubiquitous and so uh, worshipped, they've screwed up more times than you could count on two hands, you know. Yep. You yep. can't come out with a perfect – I mean, in, you know, let's face it, no one does, but they're certainly not any better than anybody else at it, and they've got millions and millions and millions of people testing their stuff. Yep. No, they, it's the one thing I learned. You know, I mentioned QEMM and DeskView is the confessional of all the sins of PC hardware design. <laughs> and the one thing I learned from running the tech support side of that was <clears throat> everybody's Windows configuration or PC configuration is different. Yeah. And you know, you never know who's using what application with what. And uh, you know. At some point, you'd come into a conflict. It used to be the biggest conflicts used to be video issues and video graphics cards and so on. But you'd come into a conflict and something wouldn't work. And um, and and on the other hand, you get some users who just get totally totally focused on saying, "I got to make this thing work," and they'll bug the hell out of you until it works. I well, mean, there were also in back in the early days, there were also a lot of conflicts. You know, and by the way, everybody who's interested in asterisk remembers this too. When you put in cards, the order of the cards on your PCI bus or whatever that bus was in those days uh, would make a difference, and you'd have to switch the orders around. And the IRQs, right? Uh, they were huge, and that has nothing to do with your software. So if you're a software house and you're listening to these people call in, and you know, you, <laughs> it's just it's incredible. Well, I, I remember one case. 
in the graphics game, boy, we were adding hardware like uh, True Vision cards, and it was it was really painful yeah. to get hardware working correctly in the, those days. Well, well, I remember one uh, case with Quarterdeck, and it was over at a major financial institution, and and they had bought one of these huge license deals for QMM at least, and I get a call one day. And it turns out what happened was that somebody had come in to install a new network card in their PC, and things weren't working right. And finally, Manifest exposed the fact that they'd forgotten to take out the old network card. <laughs> Once they took it out, everything worked. Yeah. So, as I say, every everybody's PC has a different configuration, and I don't care whether it's a Windows PC, uh, a MacBook, well, oh, Apple did a, have the advantage for years mm-hmm. on that based on the fact that they owned all the hardware, and they've never released OS X, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's going to be a lot easier to deal with that because people don't yeah. add as much outboard things and so on. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was exactly a big the same deal. problem. They just have fewer degrees of freedom. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, apologizing for them at all, but I'm saying that especially for the first 20 years of Apple hardware because they controlled everything and they controlled both the hardware and the software. The experience, that's by the way, that's why the experience was easier. I've got to tell you, I'm a little disappointed with it these days. And the proof is that today our Hangout got interrupted by the fact that I installed some new software. It doesn't have, it isn't Apple software, but that software, I believe, is what caused the interruption that froze the machine because these things never freeze. They never freeze, literally. Yeah. So the moral of that lesson is don't install new software the day when it's critical. Yeah, I said that earlier. It's obviously it you should you know, once you've been doing this for twenty five years or whatever, you should know that, of course. Yeah. But of course Anyways, we all do. Uh, yeah. Well um, I did anyway. Randy, thanks for the invitation to participate. It was great. Great to it's have you. It's been great. And I hope I've added to some conversation and I'm sure we'll put the recording up there and maybe some other only those with the patience of needing to kill an hour and a half will probably watch the entire recording in fact, yeah. i think we're up to two hours this is a record well we <laughs> we're missing some of it because of the problems we had so once we compress it down it won't be two hours but hopefully okay. all of the good stuff got in there appreciate it jim you've done a great job and a lot of interesting conversation was generated by this and everybody's nodding in the hangout aren't you james Yes, Andy and James. Nodding off. Not nodding off. Nodding, yes. Everything's cool. No, Jim, I have to say, you are one of the most thorough guys I know, and you will go through things with such meticulous care and detail. Um, You're one in a million, so thank you. Thank you, but... but I can only say, I just look at the user experience, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't... And I think uh, a Jim Courtney review on, a, on an application or something like that is is worth its weight in gold because the, the amount of care that you you take when you go through pulling things to, to pieces is uh, is is amazing. And I'm looking forward to getting into your book because there are always things that we we think we know but we don't know, and there are always nuggets buried in there. So so I for one will be getting a copy of that, and I'll do you a nice review. Thank you. And the review part from my side comes from, one, my training as a PhD, and two, my training on selling high-tech instrumentation and products over 30 years. Uh, and 
dealing with customers. Yeah, and the delight that I, uh, that I experienced sitting here listening to Carl asking you a detailed question. It's just yeah, wonderful. <laughs> there you go. Anyways, thanks a lot, everybody. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Take care, Jim. We'll look forward to seeing you again soon. That's Thank it for uh, until our uh, mature audiences segment, which comes up in about uh, 45 seconds. Hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at VUC.me on the web. Thanks to Simwood.com, who can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our host at PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time, see you next week.